Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it with me to the book of 2 Peter and chapter number 2 in the book of 2 Peter. Now, you may or may not know this if you figure my age and you, and you do a little calculating, but I am literally a child of the turbulent 60s, the 1960s. Some of you were around then. Some of you have heard about it. Uh, but I want to just share with you this morning the lyrics of a song that was done by a guy by the name of Bob Dylan. And now you're thinking, Bruce has really gone downhill He's now quoting Bob Dylan on Sunday mornings. But he did write a song that is very interesting. The title of it was, The Times They Are A-Changing. Now, this was a song that he recorded just before the assassination of John Kennedy in November of 1963. So he recorded it before Kennedy was assassinated, but it wasn't released till several months later in January of 1964. Now, at that time, there was a lot of upheaval going on in American culture on multiple fronts, socially, politically, and a lot of other ways. And so these are the lyrics of the song that he wrote. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are changing. And in many ways, we have a similar feel going on in our culture today. Secular culture is speaking out loudly. And I don't know about you, but I've felt some identity with these words again. It seems like the battle outside raging. Yes, it's happening. And in some ways, we've already felt in recent years It's shaking our windows and rattling our walls. And you get this sense, don't you? At least I do, that the times, they are changing. And one of the myths that exists in our day is that God is not going to judge anyone. And the Bible has something to say about that. And we live in this era, we mentioned this last time, when we have the potential for the greatest exposure to spiritual deception of any generation that has ever lived. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is telling us that false teaching is a clear and present danger for us. But at the same time, he is going to assure us that God will punish sin. You know, it's the age-old strategy of Satan to bring confusion to the gospel message. Satan wants to contradict the message of salvation. He wants to distort the message of salvation. He wants to add to the message of salvation. Now, the title I have given to today's message is Inevitability of Judgment. And we're going to be looking at a long section of 2 Peter 2, really beginning with verse 3 some and going down through verse 16. So that is our title for the message today. And then we have an outline for where we're going to head today. We're going to first look at the reality of danger. We've looked at this already somewhat last week. 
in verses 1 to 3. But then we're going to look at Peter's primer on false teachers in verses 3 to 16. You remember, a primer just gives you basic information on a subject. And he's going to talk about their eventual demise in verse 3 down through verse 10a. And then he's going to give a detailed description of false teachers in verse 10 down through verse 16. He's going to talk a little bit about the DNA of false teachers, their character, their tactics, their motives, and so forth. Now, I want to remind you of a passage we looked at last time, which is in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is meeting with the leaders of the church at Ephesus, and he he gives these words to them, and this is against the backdrop of false teaching. He says, be on guard for yourselves. Isn't it interesting he says that? He's talking to the spiritual leaders, and he says, spiritual leaders, you need to be on guard for yourselves when it comes to false teaching. And he says, and also for all the flock. And then he says in verse 31, be on the alert. So let's take a look at the reality of this danger again. We, we, we did this last week. If you weren't here, I invite you to go back and we give a, a very good present-day illustration of false teaching by looking at the secular social justice worldview. But I just want to read these first three verses again and invite you to follow along in your Bible. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, false prophets arose among the people, talking about Old Testament history, just as there will also be false teachers among you. That means among us who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And what is the result going to be? Well, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the false teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, what we want to do is take a closer look today at this idea of this primer that he wants to give us of false teaching and their eventual demise. Now, I want you to look at verse 3. Verse 3 says there, an interesting term, little phrase, it says, their judgment from long ago is not idle. I think the NIV says, their judgment has long been hanging over them. And he also says there in verse 3, their destruction is not asleep. It's not like God's judgment is napping somewhere. And you know, we, whenever we're faced with certain things in life, particularly even with false teaching, we just wish God would act quicker. But the assurance we have is he's not napping anywhere. He is going to deal with this. And part of what Peter's stressing in this whole chapter is that any false teaching that is a destructive heresy, that means it has anti-gospel ideas, or it maligns the truth, it discredits the truth, it defames the truth, that false teaching God will judge. No one gets away with anything. Now, when I was in middle school, which we called junior high back in the day, Uh, I would often run into the post office to put some letters in there. My mother would have me do that. And when I went to the post office, I noticed something on the wall there. And that was, I noticed there were wanted posters. I don't know if you've ever seen these in a post office. But you had the 
FBI's 10 most wanted list. So there were 10 of these wanted posters on the wall. Now, a whole wall of violators. A description would be given of these individuals, a list of the charges that were against them. And, you know, being middle school age, I think, you know what? I might be able to catch one of these guys. And so I would go in and I would study these posters on the wall. Now, a lot of times I would even get bold and I would say to different people who were running the post office behind the counter, I would say, do you have any extras of those wanted posters hanging around, you know? I could study them at home. I could figure out who these guys were. And uh, even sometimes after they, they would get ready to be changed because the 10 most wanted would shift, I would even sometimes even say, hey, do you have any of those ones that are out of date now? I, I'd love to have one of those. Well, as we walk into 2 Peter 2, verses 4 down through verse 10, we're going to see three evidence posters that are hanging there that God will judge false teaching and God will judge rebellion. And so the very first poster we have is in verse 4. And the first poster is of the angel's rebellion. Now, one of the things that's interesting in these verses is here's what he says. He says, if God did this, if God did this, if God did this, then you can count on this. That then is actually in verse 9. So the first poster that we see in the wall of violators is in verse 4. Just look at verse 4 with me. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Well, then you would come down later to the then statement. This is the first illustration, the angel's rebellion. Now, it's a little bit mysterious what event he's actually talking about. Which event in which the angels sinned is he addressing? And one event he could be addressing when he's talking about the angels' rebellion is what we might call the original rebellion of the angels, which, by the way, happened prehistory. We don't really have details given us that. We know that Satan appears in the garden, right? So this may be a reference to this prehistory rebellion. Now, I've given you some passages up here in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. Many people believe it's giving us the heart of Satan in his rebellion. And in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19, it's giving a little more of the history of Satan's rebellion. And in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, we know that when Satan fell and he rebelled, one-third of the angels followed him. So when he's talking about the angels' rebellion, it's possible he's talking about this first rebellion. But it's also possible that he's talking about another rebellion on the part of the angels when they sinned, and that would be the rebellion that we find in the book of Genesis in chapter number 6. What happens there is some of the demons who had fallen in the original rebellion, um, fallen angels, somehow, in a way we don't really understand, we have very little information on it, cohabited with women. And so which one is he referring to when he talks about the angels' rebellion? Well, I think, personally, this subsequent rebellion is more likely for three different reasons. The first one is, as we, we're going to look at these other posters that are going to be mentioned, 
The other two posters come from events in the book of Genesis. It makes sense that all three posters would come from events in the book of Genesis. A a second hint comes there in the verse when it says, regarding these angels, that because they sinned, God cast them into hell. Now, this is not the normal word for hell in, in the Bible, which is the word Hades, This phraseology only occurs here in all of the New Testament. And the idea really behind it is that he, because of their rebellion, cast them into Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, which the New American Standard translates as pits of darkness. So the angels rebel, God committed them to pits of darkness, which seems to me to be very parallel phrase to another place that's mentioned in the New Testament, and that is the abyss. For example, in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, that's where Jesus heals the demonic from Gerasene. And as he is asking those demons to come out, they say to Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. And then in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3, when Jesus returns to the earth, it says he's going to take Satan and he's going to place him somewhere for a thousand years while his kingdom reigns on the earth, and that is in the abyss. So what I'm trying to say is this idea of pits and darkness and the idea of the abyss seem to be very parallel terms, being a holding place for demonic beings who have done extraordinary infractions. So I think the second option is more likely. And the third reason why I think it's more likely is have Satan and his demonic beings, are, are they in some abyss or some pit of darkness right now? No. We, we learn from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, and we learn from Acts chapter 6 and verse 12 that Satan is still out. He's like a roaring lion going around finding someone he might devour. And we know in Ephesians 6, it talks about some structure in the demonic world. So all I'm saying by this, we may not fully understand what he's referring to, but it's very clear that these individuals, that he's talking about these angels who have fallen, and notice it says at the end of the, they are reserved for judgment. They're in a pit of darkness, I think in the abyss, or an extraordinary infraction, but they're being reserved for judgment, and the ultimate judgment that will come to these angelic beings, these fallen beings, will be the lake of fire. So that's poster number one. Poster number two in verse five is the ancient world and the flood. Look at verse five. Again, if God did not spare the angels, we could say in verse five, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, I have some good friends who would say when you look at the flood in the book of Genesis, they, they feel like that was a local flood, some sort of a local flood that occurred. I have never been able to go there. To me, it is very clear in Scripture that this was a worldwide flood that eliminated most of the world's population. 
We know that in part from Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, because it talks about as the floodwaters came up, they went 15 cubits, or 22.5 feet, over the tops of the highest mountains. So like if you were floating around in the water, you got 22 and a half feet below you before you'd come to firm turf. This was a worldwide flood. We learn from Genesis chapter, four, uh, chapter 7, verse 4 and verse 23, that every living thing was destroyed by this flood, except Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. We learned that it took four and a half months for any land to appear. It was all water. And here's what I would say. If this was a local flood, how could God promise he would never do it again? That only makes sense if it was worldwide. But why does he judge? Why did he judge the ancient world? Well, we learn from Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 that the wickedness of the people at the time was great and that every intent of their heart was only evil continually. So the first poster is the angel's rebellion. Then we have the ancient world and the flood. And then we have the third poster that is hanging there, evidence poster. And that is in verses 6 to 8. And this would be the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at them with me. It says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, to destruction by reducing them to ashes and having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, 4, verse 8, by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So you have this second poster, and a couple of passages you might want to check out. This whole event, by the way, happens in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. But we learn from Genesis 13, 13 that they were exceedingly wicked. And then we have some more insight into their character in Ezekiel 16, verses 49 to 50. And basically, here's what God said of the world at the time. They were inordinately proud, and they had committed abominations before me. And so God, with these two cities, decides to destroy them by fire and brimstone. Now, it's interesting, we've searched around, archaeologists have, to try to find where Sodom and Gomorrah are located. Can't find it anywhere. Many scholars believe that the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah are underneath the Dead Sea in Israel. So the question really is, will God judge false teachers? And these three posters point to the answer, yes, he will judge them. So you have if the first first poster, if the second poster, if the third poster, and then you come down to verses 9 and 10. If God judged these... Then the Lord knows, verse 9, how to rescue the godly from temptation or from testings and troubles and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of justice. He is fully able to judge the wicked and simultaneously preserve the godly. Now, if you know much about the event of Sodom and Gomorrah and you know much about Lot as an individual, and it's talking about rescuing the, the godly, you might think, 
Lot was godly? I mean, Lot, I mean, you go back and study and read about him. He made a lot of poor spiritual choices. He made some sinful choices. He displayed poor spiritual judgment in his life. Could he really be godly? Well, you know, to be honest, at times we do that, right? We can display some poor spiritual judgment. We, we can make some sinful choices. But that doesn't mean we're not righteous. It's interesting, in verses 7 and 8, three times the term righteous is attached to Lot. Look at verse 7. If he, God, rescued righteous Lot, verse 8, talking about what Lot saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them. And then felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. See, while Lot was a struggling believer and while Lot had his priorities at times out of order in his life, God still calls him what? What does God call him? Righteous. Why is he called righteous? Because of his position in the Lord. That's true of you and me. God calls Bruce righteous not because I make all the right choices and I always display the proper spiritual judgment. He calls me righteous because of my position in him. So what are we learning? Well, there is a day of full reckoning to come. And Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15 talks about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verses 3 to 10 talks about this. So we're seeing this primer on false teachers. We've looked at just so important information on these three posters. Now we want to talk about a little bit more about uh, a detailed description about them. By the way, I want to just say this. This day of full reckoning is to come. Remember Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 10. But we want to now move to a detailed description about these false teachers. This is where it gets interesting to me. Now, we're going to look a little bit about their motives. We're going to look a little bit about their character. We're going to look a little bit at their tactics. Now, it was many years ago. I was just sitting there contemplating some things, and I thought to myself, when I thought about false teachers, people who willingly distort the gospel, I thought, what motivates false teachers? You ever wondered that? I mean, it's a dark thing to be a false teacher. What motivates them to do what they do? Well, as I did this extensive study of Scripture, I realized that there are three motivations that the Bible talks about that motivate false teachers. And they can be false teachers inside the Christian community, or it can be false teaching that happens out in the world, like the secular social justice world view. But there's three motivations. So you ought to write these down. These would be good to note. So the first motivation of a false teacher would be sensuality and sex. Sensuality and sex. They want to gratify their drives. And 2 Peter 2.2 he, he mentions the word sensuality there. Don't follow their sensuality. It's a word that has sex connected to it. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul says, we, we don't operate as a teacher by impurity. It's another word that has sex tied to it. And then we have in chapter 2 and verse 14, this little statement about the false teachers. They have eyes full of adultery, enticing unstable souls. So one of the things that motivates false teachers is sensuality and sex. There's a second one that the Bible talks about, and that is money and affluence, money and affluence. And we actually see that mentioned in chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 15. In verse 3, he talks about how in their greed, they exploit you. Verse 14 has this idea, this little phrase, they have a heart trained in greed. And then in verse 15, he's going to talk about an example of a false teacher from the Old Testament, which would be Balaam, and it says that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. And so you can have the motivation of sensuality and sex. You can have the motivation of money and affluence. The third motivation the New Testament talks about, the Bible talks about, is the pride of power, influence, and popularity. The pride of power, influence, and popularity. Let me give you a couple of passages. You can jot these down. In John chapter 12, in verse 43, Jesus, speaking of the Pharisees, says this. They love, literally, he says, glory from men rather than glory from God. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, they seek favor from men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, we are not like the false teachers who seek glory from men. And so you have these three motivations. It may be sensuality and sex. It may be money and affluence. It may be the pride of power, influence, and popularity. And again, this can be inside of the church community at large. It can be from the secular world. If it's false teaching, at least one of these three things is motivating them. Sometimes two of these things, sometimes all three of these things. And so it's important that we be equipped to be on the lookout for these things. And as I talk about these things, some of you are thinking about situations where you've seen some of this surface. When I even think of the sexual, uh, the, uh, here we go again, the secular social justice worldview, if you've been following things, you're going to notice these things popping up because these are the motivations of false teachers. Now, what I want to do is I want to probe a little bit more deeply um, for a few moments into a detailed description of these false teachers. And what's the reason why he's going into this for us? We're not to be influenced and victimized by false teaching, but rather we're to recognize it and steer clear of it. So one mark that he wants to talk about in a detailed description of false teachers is authoritarian arrogance. Authoritarian arrogance. And we see that mentioned in verses 10 and 11. He basically says these false teachers are brazen. They, they lack accountability. 
In verse 10, he says of them at the end, they despise authority. They, they recognize no authority because they're an authority to themselves. They tend to be dictatorial rather than team, truly team-led people. In verse 10, he also uses the word daring of them. It's a word that means to be defiant. In verse 10, he says they are self-willed. They live ultimately for themselves. To them, people, listen here carefully, this is important. People are pawns to be used for their benefit. And then, then he mentions some attitude they have towards angelic beings in the end of verse 10 and verse 11. I don't know exactly what he's referring to, but somehow they display this attitude of despising authority, this authoritarian arrogance towards angelic beings. I don't know whether they're God's angels or, or fallen angels, but there's disrespect that they communicate. Another mark that they have as a false teacher is they're like unreasoning animals. They live by their flesh instincts. They're like an animal that is driven by its instincts to find prey. And he says they operate out of these flesh instincts. In verse 13, he says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are accustomed to indulging their pleasures. They love luxury. They love an expensive lifestyle. They love having their personal jets. And there's really no attempt at discretion. They like to flaunt this kind of indulgence. And then he says something very interesting in verse 13. He says that they are stains and blemishes. That's an interesting statement that God would make. He says, he says they are stains. They are are blemishes, which is really interesting because that's the very opposite of what someone who follows Jesus is to be. In chapter 3, which we will get there eventually in another series, in verse 14, he says, followers of Jesus, you are to be without spot or blemish. It's the exact same words, just has the alpha privative put in front of them. As we live our life, we're to be without spot, with, without blemish. We're to be without stain. But these guys, he says, are stains and they are blemishes. There's another mark that we mentioned briefly, that their eyes are full of adultery there in verse 14. If you want to look there, he says, their eyes are full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. In other words, he's saying, these false teachers who are motivated by this motivation are regularly on a sexual hunt. When there's a spiritual gathering, they view that gathering as an opportunity for sexual encounters. And their followers are objects to be ravished. Now, all of us, I think, if you've been around for a while, we have heard accounts where we know this was true. It's likely that some of us who are actually here and part of why would have actually experienced this kind of thing. It's interesting when he says in, in verse 14, enticing unstable souls, unstable souls. This is actually that little word that's translated enticing is a fisherman's term. It was used of a fisherman baiting a hook. It's interesting who's writing this. It's Peter who was what? A, a fisherman. 
And Jesus called Peter and said, I want you to be more than just a fisher of fish. I want you to be a fisher of, of men. And Peter is saying, these false teachers are fishers of men. They're targeting the same people, but with selfish, evil intent. And they love to have their followers join in on their immoral lifestyle. And then there's another big mark of false teachers, and that is, we mentioned this earlier, they have their heart trained in greed. Very picturesque terminology because the word that is translated trained here is a word that refers to systematic exercise. And they have a heart trained in greed. They have been very premeditated in what they're doing. They're very planned out in what they want to accomplish. They've gone through a process, and they're very proficient at that process. They have a heart trained in greed. Now, that actually raises a question, and the question is this. Should any pastor make a living from the ministry? Legitimate question to ask. And Chuck Swindoll, I think, does a great job clarifying this. Here's what he says of a pastor. He says, he may make a living preaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says that. But he shouldn't make a killing. He serves others, not himself. He lives in a house, not an amusement park. He drives a car, not a limousine. He goes on to say, pastor is accountable, not unaccountable. He is transparent with his finances, doesn't flatter or sell out, refuses to cater to the wealthy, and exhibits none of the attributes of unbridled greed. I like this part too. He said his private life is an open book, not a series of secrets, which by the way, false teachers love to have a secret life that they're trying to hide from people. Now, having said all of that, in verses 15 and 16, he wants to give an example of false teacher from the Old Testament, which is Balaam, who is a biblical example. And uh, by the way, I want you to notice verse 15. I almost skipped over this. Notice it says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. False teachers make a choice. It's not an accident. It's a choice to abandon God's way. And he's going to illustrate this with Balaam from Numbers 22 to Numbers 25. And uh, he really wants to talk through how Balaam is an example of this. If you go back and you read about it, Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was a prophet of God, but he was a prophet for hire. And for money and recognition, Balaam deliberately chose to go the wrong way. And by the way, he was motivated not just with money, because he also goes on to promote sexual immorality in the nation of Israel. We learn that from um, chapter 25 of Numbers and verses 1 to 3. So the point of all of this is that God will judge. God will punish sin and rebellion. And men and women not just judge false teachers. There is a day of reckoning coming to this world. And the problem is we keep assuming everything's just going to keep going as it would. No, there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. There is a day of reckoning coming. But there's good news. It's not necessary that anybody be judged. Jesus took your penalty, my penalty. He took your sin and your rebellion, and he put it on himself. That's what he did on the cross. And it's not necessary that anyone undergo judgment. I'm always moved by what it says in John 5, 24, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, which was God's way of saying, hey, hey, giving you the real bottom line here. He who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. That's an amazing statement. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You know what that means? You know what that verse means? It means even a false teacher who has evil motivation and evil intent, if they recognize the error of their ways and they repent, it means they, even they, can find mercy if they turn to Jesus and trust in his work on the cross. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me. But that's the kind of God that we have. Now, as we've looked at all this and we've had a lot of detail to cover and everything else, I want to I talk for a moment about some life response that you and I can have. How do we respond to everything we've looked at? Well, the first life response I would like to suggest is this. This is true for me, true for you. And that is to pray for and share the gospel with those in your world who do not know Christ. When we talk about that, we're talking about your friends, my friends, your loved ones, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students. It's interesting how often we don't do this. It all begins with praying for them. How long has it been since you prayed for your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students? And when the opportunity is there to share the gospel, the good news about salvation with those who do not know Christ. So that's the first life response. Very practical. We can all do that even beginning today in a fresh way. Now, the second life response that I would suggest as we close actually begins with a quote. It begins with a quote from a man by the name of J.C. Ryle. And here's what he says. This is true for you and me. He says, you live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Peter's telling us that. Enemies are around you on every side. Your own heart is deceitful. Scripture teaches us that. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Well, he also goes on to say, above all, false doctrine and false teachers of every kind abound. That's true. So what are we to do? He says, to be safe, you must be well-armed. What does that mean? Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written word of God. 
men and women, his word is the ballast that we need to avoid being tossed to and fro like a cork on the waves of false teaching. And so what do I mean when I'm talking about the second life response? This is what we need to do. And when we need to learn the truth, we need to teach the truth, we need to heed the truth. That's what God wants from you and me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the scriptures. We thank you for the truth that we've seen. May we be men and women who are actively praying for those around us who don't know you and being willing to share the good news that we have embraced. And then, Father, as a church, as individuals, as parents, as young people, may we be men and women who learn the truth, teach the truth, heed the truth for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. 